Welcome back to the Theomagination Podcast, a podcast about God, faith, and faithful imagination in the 21st century. I'm your host, Phil Odd. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for your patience with me in getting the second half of this conversation with Dr. Bauer Schmidt released. It has been a busy month, but we are back on track. In this episode, we talk about things like friendship, enemies, nonviolence, resurrection, and even evangelism. So let's jump right in. I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's popular, at least in some evangelical circles, where people will take kind of that one half of verse wrongly interpreted, but uh, about, you know, God not being able to look on sin. And I, I mean, there's almost a way of dissecting the Trinity, you know, on the flip side, that God couldn't look on Jesus. He couldn't, there was almost a separation of the Godhead. Yeah. Yeah. That would be one of those ways of trying to think about the Trinity and the cross together that I think are less than helpful. (laughs) I mean, yes, Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Um, And I don't want to just kind of turn that into something, you know, anodyne and, and harmless. But it is true, you know, if you read Psalm 22, it goes on as an expression of confidence Hmm. in God, even in a situation where it seems like God might have abandoned you. And so I don't think that we ought to think of the cross as the father abandoning the son. Right, Um, right. I mean, how could Julian have seen the joy in it? I mean, the cross is just so central to her visions, yet there's none of this element of the father punishing the son, the father abandoning the son. Um, And it's hard for me to imagine how if the Eternal Father could abandon the Eternal Son, that this could be good news for us at all. <laughs> yeah. I much prefer the father the of the prodigal son who never abandons his son, even yes. when his son goes into the far country. I love it. You write that if Jesus' crucifixion cannot be properly understood apart from the life that precedes it, it likewise cannot be understood apart from the resurrection that follows it. And so your next move is to write about uh, about friendship with the risen Jesus. What do you mean, or maybe what don't you mean, when you use the word friendship here? Yeah, so this might be partly the uh, result of having studied with Stanley Harawas, for whom friendship is really a central category in his ethics. And Stanley might have been the first person I ever heard say that the most important moral decision you ever make in your life, perhaps the only important moral decision you make in your life, is who your friends are going to be. Uh, you said that that shocks your students oftentimes <laughs> when you bring that up, right? Right, because I think, to their credit, friendship's incredibly important to people in their early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have left behind the the friends they just kind of happened to fall in with due to, like, where they were born and what neighborhoods they lived in. Huh. And they go off to college, and suddenly, really for the first time, they have to be, for many of them at least, they have to be thinking about, well, how do I decide who to be friends with? Mm-hmm. And so friendship is very, very important to them. But the idea that it could actually be something moral, right? Yeah. <laughs> that it could be because they have such negative 
associations with the term morality. It's it's really rather <laughs> remarkable. But I think they can begin, you know, if you start talking about, well, do your friends actually influence how, not just how you live your life, but the things that you like, mm. the things that you think are important? Do you influence them? You know, do you ever feel like your friends can help you be a better person or that you're a better person when you're around them, that maybe you're generous when you're around them? And, mm. and they can begin to sort of understand that, I think. Mm. So, I mean, I think by friendship, um, again, friendship like love is something that can be super sentimentalized, right? Right, yeah. That's why I use Aristotle's distinction between you know, friendships of utility, which are really kind of like your business acquaintances, and mm-hmm. friendships of pleasure, which are the people you find amusing and fun to be around, and what he calls noble friendship, uh, which isn't necessarily friendship between nobles, though one sometimes suspects that it is for Aristotle. Uh, <laughs> but it's really a friendship that ennobles you. It makes you a better person. Mm. And the reason it does is because you and the friend love the same things. You share the same ends. You orient your lives in in the same way. And so in a sense, you could say a noble friendship is one that you have with those who are on the journey with you. Mm. You've got a common destination and you're taking this journey together and in a sense, making it possible to undertake that journey. Does friendship then become a means of, of holiness in a sense? Oh, I think definitely. Yeah. I often think that in our theology of marriage, we really probably should begin with the notion of spouses as friends. Mm. And, you know, often people will say, oh, you know, my husband's my best friend or something, which I'm not sure that that's actually necessary. (laughs) I think you can have somebody other than your spouse as your best friend. But I do think that this idea of friendship as a path to holiness, and then, of course, marriage as uh, a particular kind of friendship leading to a particular kind of holiness. I mean, I think there's a a lot to be thought about there. In the next section, you write about the ways that our love of God is inextricably bound up with love of neighbor. But you also write that loving our enemies and forgiving them is not the same thing as overlooking injustice. And you go on to claim that the imperative to love our enemies suggests a correlative imperative to recognize them as enemies. And you even talk about Augustine's uh, meditation on the verse that we're tempted to avoid in Psalm 139, 22. I have hated them with perfect hatred. I found your thoughts here really fascinating. Why is it important to recognize our enemies as enemies? And what is this perfect hatred? Well, I mean, I think the alternative to recognizing our enemies as enemies is really to just simply disengage from them. Mm. I mean, if somebody is really opposed to you on a, on a fundamental level and is, is seeking to do you harm, well, one thing to do would be to just avoid them, right? Mm. They remain your enemy, but you just try and ignore it. You know, none of us likes to face up to the fact that some people might not like us. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Even if you think the person who doesn't like you is just a terrible human being, we all want to be liked, right? So I I do think there's a tendency to just want to sort of ignore our enemies. Hmm. Not so much pretend that they're our friends, but just pretend that they don't exist. But I think by recognizing our enemies as enemies, you are making them an object of concern in an important way. And of course, recognizing your enemies as enemies could lead you to try and eliminate them, right? We all Hmm. want to get rid of our enemies. But then the question is, well, how do you get rid of an enemy? And Augustine's answer is, well, you get rid of an enemy by turning them into a friend. Hmm. Right. And this is rooted in his notion of evil as an absence of good. 
right? Mm. Or the, I like to put it that evil is like a wound in the good. Uh, and if you have a wound, you don't get rid of the wound by trying to cut it out, right? Mm. You get rid of the wound by healing it, wow. right? So if you have an enemy, and if that enemy is a genuine enemy, let's presume that it's not, this is not some misunderstanding, but this is somebody who is, you know, really has malice towards you. The way to eliminate that enemy is to heal that malice. Yeah, you write that to love our enemies is to renounce the idea that we have it in our power to make history turn out right, to end suffering, to banish all evil, uh, which is tricky for many of us. Um, But then you say to love our enemies is in the end to disarm ourselves of any weapons except the cross and the Spirit's gift of faith, hope, and love. So, yeah, could you talk a little bit about that for a minute, disarming ourselves of any weapon except the cross? This, I think, is one of the hardest issues with this question of, of loving enemies is, yeah. I mean, it's one thing to be disarmed when you're being attacked, but often we have enemies who are not just attacking us, but they're attacking our loved ones mm. or people that we care about, right? I think, you know, often in the political sphere, you know, I think of like, there's people I consider in some sense enemies who I've never met, right? Yeah, yeah. And they may not be doing anything against me, but they are doing things against people I am concerned for. And to recognize that there might be limits on your ability to stop an enemy from doing the evil that they're doing, Mm. even if it means that somebody other than you might might end up suffering for it. I mean, I, that's a really tough issue, and I don't think it's subject to any kind of easy answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, often when you talk about these things, people are going to say, well, what if if somebody broke into your house tonight, particularly, sorry, but Americans right. are going to say, you know, well, because guns are so important. I, I lived in the U.S. for a long time, but um, <laughs> you really, you're not going to have a gun. And it seems almost unimaginable to a lot of people. Or it's like two examples that seem to happen over and over again. It's the person breaks in the house or Hitler's in power, <laughs> right? And um, you're not going to do anything. So so without trying to make you have some kind of pat answer here to these, but how do you deal with this question of kind of the faithful nonviolence of Christians in the face of great evil? Yeah, I think, uh, though I don't think she considers herself a Christian, uh, Joan Baez has a great little essay called Three Cheers for Grandma, because it's the scenario of somebody's holding a gun to your grandma's head. What, you know, <laughs> are you just going to, you know, not do anything? And she kind of, uh, does a great job of, of deconstructing these kinds of highly artificial scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things she points out is, you know, well, I can't shoot them because I don't have a gun. Well, let's say you have a gun. Well, I don't know how to shoot a gun. I'd probably shoot myself in the leg, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the problems with these kinds of scenarios is they're so artificially constructed as if this situation pops up and that nothing's come before it and nothing's going to follow it, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. Uh, So my decision about how I'm going to act in that scenario is going to be conditioned by all sorts of other decisions I've made you know, throughout my life up to that time, such as my decision not to own a gun, right? I've made a decision not to own a gun precisely because I don't want to have the option of pointing at a gun and another human being and kill them to try as, as a remedy for what could be a terrible situation. Yes. You know, one of the things that Stanley Hauerwas often talks about is how Christians have to raise their children prepared to die. Hmm. Um, so yeah. I think that these sorts of scenarios that we construct, um, they're, they're very self-justifying, right? Mm. Uh, the, the scenario that allows me 
to have the weapon in my house that will give me what, frankly, I think is an illusion of an ability to control my fate. Wow. Um, I mean, it's it's so funny that we think that this, you know, one in a million chance of a home invasion uh, <laughs> is like the big threat to us when, in fact, you know, we get in our cars and like we're likely to die on the highway. But I mean, short of refusing to drive cars, which might be good for all of us, uh, you know, we can't avoid that. So we come up with these odd things that almost literally never happen and right. because we feel like somehow we can control that. Yeah, I think for me, it's like, why am I so angry when that person cut me off? And <laughs> maybe I need to deal with my family tells me I do, but that I need to deal with that. And, and maybe these million little decisions actually prepare us for a way should the one in a million happen. I, I think it's maybe about faithfulness, right? Like a, a means of learning faithfulness, but faithfulness typically comes through the through the daily interactions, uh, which friendship presses back on us, I guess, right? Right, definitely. I mean, I the, the one time in my adult life I was ever punched in the face, um, uh, I won't go into the whole story, but I you know, had done something to make somebody angry. And Was it Eric Metaxas? Not somebody I knew, it was a stranger, huh. you know, punched me in the face and I was all ready to call the police. There, there, was, there was a racial disparity too, but I- huh had a friend who was sort of there to kind of hold me accountable to what I you know, professed to believe about turning the other cheek wow. and uh, nonviolence. And, you know, I probably would have, you know, filed assault charges against this person. And I still look back and think maybe this was a person who's like engaged in domestic violence. Who knows what this, but this person had a lot of rage. Mm. Uh, but I think I made the decision that, you know, me calling the police on this person was not going to dissipate this person's rage. Mm. Um, but it was only because I had a friend there to remind me of the convictions I professed to hold. I mean, in some ways, he was holding my convictions for me in that moment. To go back to what you were saying about Howard was saying, you know, we need to raise our children to die. Is there a way then going back, you know, that friendship with the risen Jesus informs this in a way? No, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, the the resurrection is the great relativizing of death, and that doesn't, mm. in some ways, it doesn't take away the horror of death because you know we believe that through sin, death enters the world. So death is a kind of a relic of sin. I suppose though, the true horror is sin, not death itself. Mm. But I think that even recognizing the horror of death, and I think anybody who's who's lost a loved one has this profound sense of the wrongness of death. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at, at the same time, I think hope for the resurrection, in a sense, relativizes death. Mm. And death is no longer the worst thing that can happen to you. Yeah. And particularly if you see death as a relic of sin, that kind of shifts things back, right? So then it's become sin is the worst thing that can happen to you because mm. death's a symptom. It's not the cause. And to save yourself from death by sinful means would not be solving the problem. It'd be just kind of plunging a little deeper into the horror. Yeah, I, I often look at these things and say, you know, do the things that we have, whether they're our guns or, or what have you, are they symbols that were still held in slavery to the fear of death, right? And I think it's, you make an important point there that it's not the, it's not a trivialization of death. And any of us who have experienced the death or particularly, you know, seen the death of, of a child or somebody who's died far before their time. And, and yet holding that with the truth that Jesus came to set us free from the slavery of the fear of death. And 
I wonder what the symbols that we hold on to speak speak about that. Yeah, yeah, I find, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. Augustine's reflections on the death of his mother, and how, yeah, as yeah, you know, at that point, still kind of a, I think, what the evangelicals call a baby Christian. Um, <laughs> he he has a sense of guilt about his grief, right? He feels like he can't, you know, as a Christian now, he shouldn't mourn his mother. And he really, I think, is on the verge of doing some severe psychological damage to himself. Hmm. But clever man that Augustine is, he figures out that, well, no, if death is a result of sin, if it's a relic of sin in the world, then of course we should mourn the death of somebody. Yeah. He compares it to the death of a friend he has when he's a young man and how he's just completely undone by the death of this friend. And he says, when his mother dies, he says, well, I still wept, but I wept in your presence and you were the one who heard my cries. So I think, you know, the resurrection doesn't take away the sting of death, um, yeah. but it does give us, I guess, resources for hope. So in your final chapter, you write about the community that's created by the Spirit. And I work with young people, and as you noted, many are disillusioned with the church. Though I've got to say that since the pandemic, I've spoken with a lot of people who are incredibly faithful to their local ecclesial communities who have gotten into new Sunday routines, uh, like hiking the Rockies, for example, which is not bad, <laughs> or a lazy Sunday morning. Uh, you know, I, I guess pastorally, what would you say about the community? we call the local church right now. What what are you discerning in this moment? Uh, you know, it's a strange apocalyptic moment in many senses. What are you discerning about what the Spirit is saying regarding the community that the Spirit creates? I, I think apocalyptic is a really good word for it, not because this is the end of everything, but it's an unveiling, right? Um, yes. And I think it's going to be a really interesting question about whether people bother coming back to church when they're able to. I've at the cathedral here in Baltimore where I'm assigned as a deacon, I've been saying, you know, we can't think of this in terms of simply resuming. We need to think in terms of restarting. Hmm. We need to think in terms of, you know, there are ministries, there are activities. We're not just going to announce we're going to start doing this again and everybody's going to show up. Because as you say, people acquire new habits. And I don't think it's actually a bad thing that people go to church out of habit. Right. I don't think that in and of itself. I mean, I tell people that I actually have no personality of my own. I'm just a collection of habits and neuroses. But I think that's (laughs) all any of us are. So sure. So I'm not opposed to the fact, you know, that that people have gone to church out of habit, but I think we got to face up to the fact that those habits have now been completely derailed and people have acquired new habits. And I think it's, if the church is not willing to evangelize, and I don't mean that in terms of standing on the street corner, but I do mean that in terms of intentionally trying to share the gospel. If the church isn't willing to evangelize, I just don't think people are going to come back. I mean, I think there will be a, a drastic reduction in numbers and a lot of congregations I think will We'll just close up shop. What does evangelism look like to you in, in in the time in which we live in this era? Well, I think it looks like a number of things. And in some ways, these are qualities I've tried to give this book. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think evangelization requires a sense that the gospel is both demanding, but also a source of deep joy. I don't think we need to soft pedal the demands of the gospel. 
Yeah. In fact, I think my experience, at least with young people, is many, I'm not all, but many are exhilarated by something that is that is demanding. Mm. But we also have to give them a sense that it's not uh, demanding because there's a giant rule book that you have to follow, as important as rules can be, but that mm. it's demanding because you're following the crucified Jesus. Mm. I also think the other thing we need to do is have a lot more honesty about the failures of Christians and the failures of the church. Yes. You know, I mean, as a Roman Catholic, we've been living through a, well, at least 20-year-long catastrophe of sex abuse revelations, hmm. preceded by decades of sexual abuse, which which is the, the deeper catastrophe. And the years of trying to protect the church's image are just simply over. Yep. It's just not, it just, it never worked. It was never right. It never worked, but it's particularly not going to work now. But I do think it's worth, not as a, a tactic of diversion or distraction, but I do think it's worth trying to point to places and people where, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is really making extraordinary things happen mm. uh, in ways that I think are inexplicable. Now, there have been enough revelations about various revered Christian figures that, you know, all of our heroes, I suspect, have clay feet to one degree or another. Yeah. Yet still somehow, I do think that the Spirit makes remarkable things happen in the world. Mm. And I think we need to be able to point to those. Mm -hmm. we, we need to cooperate with the Spirit so that remarkable things can happen. I suppose the other thing evangelization looks like is we have to stop being so damn afraid. You know, yeah. <laughs> we just, we really have to act like the resurrection's real mm. and that we can live the gospel in its fullness and we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to try and control things. We don't have to try and protect ourselves. Beautiful. I think that your book is a, such a move in the right direction for many people. He had written in the introduction that near the end of his life, following a profound religious experience while celebrating Mass, Thomas Aquinas ceased writing. He is reported to have said, when asked why he ceases theological labors, all that I have written seems like straw to me compared with what I have seen. As Thomas himself had often said, the inadequacy of human language plagues all attempts to talk about God. But sometimes even our straw can be used by God as tinder upon which the spark of the spirit can fall. I've really sensed that with your, with your work in this book. It's so accessible. It's such beautiful theology, but you had an ability to make it so accessible that I can give this to and discuss it with people who are not of the Christian faith or who are struggling with the Christian faith or have deeper questions about it. And I'm going to agree with Howard was here, well, a lot of places, but here as well, <laughs> when he said that I cannot help but believe that this book is destined to become a classic. And I, I want to thank you. I, I think this is one one of the places where you're at work with the Spirit, and this is such an incredibly beautiful resource for the church. I, I want to thank you for writing this book and for taking the time to talk to me today. This has been a real gift. Well, thank you, Phil. This is this has been a lot of fun. I, I like talking about these things, obviously. I make my living talking about them, but uh, it's, it's nice to also hear that efforts I've made have maybe fallen on some good ground. It's very gratifying. Well, they, they most certainly have. So thank you. Thank you. That wraps up my conversation with Dr. Bauerschmidt about his book, The Love That Is God. Go get it and stay tuned. Coming up soon is an episode with Drs. Chris Green and Bob Eckblad on the state of the church. Until then, grace and peace.